Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we hear from Russ Heddleston, co-founder and CEO of Docsend. Docsend is an application that is increasingly used by the finance industry for sending documents like pitch decks. You can also create secure and tracked file sharing spaces or data rooms. Although I've used Docsend and I think it's a really strong tool, this episode is not about them. I reached out to Russ because he has a really interesting Silicon Valley career. Some may say he's been living the tech dream. From Stanford and Harvard degrees to selling his first company to Facebook and now on to launching Docsend, he's been making all the right moves. For Docsend, he raised venture financing and is now organically growing in the high double digits with over 13,000 monthly customers. He's achieved that important stage of not needing to raise more capital, but that doesn't mean he's not free from the pressures of investor expectations. Of course, nothing ever goes perfectly, but you have to hand it to him for his experience and leadership going through this, as well as for the advice he shares in this episode. He makes the point that raising money is hard work, so don't let that fall short on you. A key part of our discussion focuses around the empirical data of a raising capital. His company's released a number of reports on how winning pitch decks are comprised the time it takes to raise capital, and other interesting nuances of what makes for a successful capital raise. Now, I'm not a big baseball fan, but that's a data-driven sport. Now we're seeing data being applied to how entrepreneurs are raising capital. And to me, that's very interesting. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Russ Heddleston, who's the co-founder and CEO of Docsend. Russ, thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, Corey, thanks for having me. You know, I, I was very interested to reach out because one, I've actually, I've used Docsend before and the more I looked into it and from our pre-conversation, I thought this was so fitting because it fits in as a part of financing and technology, bringing those two together to get a lot of data. But aside from what you're doing there, you've got a really interesting background, an interesting career. And what I was hoping to do is, is hand it over to you for a bit of an introduction on yourself and then we'll dive into some questions. Absolutely. It sounds great. Yeah. So as, as you mentioned, my name is Russ Heddleston. I'm currently the CEO and a co-founder at a startup in San Francisco called Docsend, or, you know, many of us are in San Francisco, but most of us, all of us are remote now. My background has always been in tech. Uh, I was at Stanford for undergrad and grad in computer science. I'm from South Dakota originally, the more tropical neighbor of Calgary to the south, as I like to think of, of yeah, okay. South Dakota. <laughs> and then have been fortunate to work at some really interesting and great tech firms over the years, usually pretty early on. Like I was uh, one of the first interns at Trulia in 2006, um, and I think there were like five or six people there. I was an intern at Dropbox in 2010 when there were about 15 people there. Um, I ran the engineering team and product team at a company called Graystripe a mobile ad network that we ended up selling to ValueClick. And then this is my second startup. The, the first one 
we raised around for and then ultimately sold to Facebook more as a talent acquisition, but happy to get into the distinction about what that actually means. And then I uh, was a product manager at Facebook for a couple of years, managing the uh, product for the pages team, which is like profile, except that it's just got a like button on it. So it's the B2B part of Facebook. And then I left Facebook and started Docsend, which I've been at ever since. Yeah, awesome. It is an interesting career there because when the names that you've been involved with, many have turned into to, to just massive juggernauts within their space. And so I've got a lot of questions around there. And let's talk about what it was like. I, I understand I was an aqua hire into Facebook and we can get the difference there. But what was that experience like earlier in your career? And, and maybe we can go further to say, you know, if you were to look back, what would you have done differently? Yeah, sure. Happy to get into it. It was actually a remarkably condensed and informative experience. So I started that company with two kind of friends and coworkers of mine uh, from Trulia, actually. And I think we were all a little naive in how we got into it in the sense that, you know, startups are fast and you have to react really fast. And we wanted to build HR tech and we had a big list of ideas and you know, it's just three engineers. So, you know, we could write all the code ourselves. And, you know, went, went about, you know, getting that kicked off, writing the code and, you know, launching a product just takes a while. So what ended up happening is we, we basically ran it for a little over a year. We raised 500K in pre-seed money. And I, I kind of called it our, our pity round because I wasn't especially good at raising money, but my co-founders hadn't done it either. And so I, I, I took point on it and, you know, we, we got it done, but I, Man, I got a lot of battle scars out of out of going through that that process for for pursuit. And then it's really tough when you fundraise because you you have to promise the world to everybody. But when we looked at the data from this product that we had built, we had sixty some companies signed up, a few thousand users, and without getting into details of what it was, the data was not informed was not telling us that this was like taken off. And so we were going to pivot to the next idea on our list. And we're fortunate that Facebook was an early user of of our product there. And so when we told them, hey, we're shutting it down and gonna move on to the, to the next idea, but it, it took us a year. We thought it would take us three months to iterate and fail <laughs> fast. And so the Facebook was like, no, 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 why don't you just come work here? And we said, huh, maybe. And so we talked to them, we talked to LinkedIn, and then my co-founders and I were talking, and we're like, you know what? We thought this would be bigger, but let's go have a big impact at Facebook. And if we you know, leave, it's like we have our next pre-seed or seed round of funding. So that was like the thought process. And we actually did end up having a great impact at Facebook and had a lot of fun, learned a ton. And we weren't wrong about that. So in retrospect, I'm happy that we were able to be honest with ourselves about where were we in our kind of traction and, you know, this opportunity that we were lucky enough to have. And we had a really great champion, um, Gokul, who is one of our investors in Docsend, and I still catch up with him. Uh, but but he was the, the champion. Talent acquisitions don't happen as much anymore. I had a, a kind of a standing offer from Facebook for a while. And so their their thought at the time was like, let's get the people we want. Let's put them in impactful roles and that'll, that'll be worthwhile. And so you got a little bit more equity than you would otherwise. There There was some payout to cover kind of expenses and costs that we had kind of accrued over time. But yeah, we had a good experience there. And certainly shopping in between companies is Kind of, kind of weird. Uh, I learned, learned a ton about both how to represent ourselves, how to go through the process, how to talk to investors, and even how to like judge your own early product market fit and how to, how to try to get to zero to one faster. So was this, when you say shopping between companies, was that, was Facebook the only suitor that you had or did, were you able to go and, and seek other offers or what was the, that process like? 
Yeah. So we only talked to one other company, LinkedIn. And so this is 2010. <laughs> this is 10 years ago. So they were both way smaller. And yeah, I got to learn a lot about both of the firms and ultimately felt more strongly about Facebook and the opportunity there. So yeah, that's, that's what I mean by shopping. But it, it, it is different when you're kind of going through like a group hiring process, for sure. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it was, like you say, it's nice that you guys had, I guess, the wherewithal, wherewithal to realize like the traction wasn't taking off and this was your best path and you did that and it's, you know, it's led to some success there. If you were to look back, what do you think, what would you have done differently? Is there something that, you know, what informed some of the moves you made later in your career from that experience? Yeah, great question, Corey. It certainly informed how we started DocSend. In retrospect for Pursuit, I thought that we made a lot of assumptions and didn't do enough interviews. And we, we did interviews with some people, but I don't think we vetted the concept uh, deeply enough. And mm. I think that if we had done that, we, we probably either would have built a slightly different product or, or tweaked it in some way or done something something differently. So you know, when my uh, co-founders, two other guys who I've worked with before for a long time, and I were starting, you know, something which ended up turning to be at Docsend, we actually vetted a, a few different ideas and had a lot higher number of conversations before we ever wrote code. It's right. tempting as a software engineer to just jump in and start writing codes, what you're comfortable doing. And once you start writing code, you start putting yourself down a particular path, and then it becomes harder and harder to get off of that path. It's the you know, just increasing your commitment and it's not a good idea. So of we were much better about, you know, doing all those interviews and for what is Docsend, we just couldn't prove it is was a bad idea. We're like, someone should do this. <laughs> so, so then we finally just committed and, and started building it. But I'm, I'm very happy we did all those interviews first. Huh. Now, I, I know that you've raised a couple or a few rounds for Docsend and you've got some interesting metrics there we can dive into, but I just want to, out of curiosity, hear about your experience with Facebook in that product management role. And is working in Facebook at that time and, and perhaps even now from people you've spoken with, is it something that's orderly and disciplined or is it just absolute chaos? Like what, what was the experience early on like? And then from other things you've heard, what is the experience like now? Yeah, it's harder for me to comment on what the experience is like now. I mean, Facebook has had a lot of very you know, tenured people there. Um, and they've had a lot of boomerangs of people who were there early and have come back. I mean, Facebook is much closer to the orderly than to the chaos side of the spectrum. But again, it can go back and forth depending on the company and depending on the size and stage. But Facebook, after I left, actually, they, they let go many of the levels of management above me and kind of cleaned house on the ad side, which Pages was a part of. And I think that was the right call for them. So I would call that to be relatively unorderly, but it was also, I think, the right decision at, at that point in time to do that. But while I was there, you know, it was like very strong management, very strong leadership. Uh, also, I mean, Facebook has lost a lot of like credibility, I think, in the news and with the public in general. But you have to remember in 2010, like it was still... Like everyone was just super excited about it. It was like really cool. And the PMs at Facebook were specifically very highly thought of because they would acquire companies and make you know, the CEO or founders PMs. And so a lot of people at Facebook at that time would look up and be like, I want to be a PM. And my response to a lot of them was like, well, you just kind of want to be like some of these people who are just really interesting, dynamic, you know, like well-rounded people. 
and can do a lot of different functions. So when I left Facebook, I made this post on Quora. It's a really long post and I don't know how many visits it's gotten. It's a crazy number of visits. And it was like, what does a PM at Facebook do? And so I had this mm. very thoughtful, long post about like how I viewed the role, how I thought Facebook specifically viewed the role, which is different than like, I also interned at Microsoft as a PM in undergrad. So I had that experience to compare to, I had the Dropbox experience to compare to, I even had the Gracetribe experience to compare to, I was doing product. And so it's a post that might be worth reading for anyone who cares about product. But I think as the PM, it's less about what's the organization you find yourself in, how chaotic is it? It's how, how much order can I bring to the process and where do I need to insert myself or not insert myself as the PM? So, you know, I mean, the, the podcast here is about finance, but I'm, I'm very curious to go down this path. And, and for clarity, by PM, meaning product manager, it sounds like in the scaling of these organizations that they were giving the product managers almost the CEO role to, to execute on that specific part of the business. If you're saying that you could go out there and, and acquire others and you had the authority to do so, was that kind of the, some of the strategy or how they approached the, the management of that? Yeah, product manager is, is PM, and that's a good thing to clarify. Different companies call it something different. It's like program manager at Microsoft. I didn't have authority to buy other companies. My point was that the organization would buy. So like my boss was the director of product management. He did have authority to buy other companies and bring on that talent and you know bring on a team that knew how to work together to move faster. And then, yeah, I think PMs often think of themselves as mini CEOs. I think that's pretty dangerous because mm. I think that you need to have a low ego in that role. But, you know, yeah, if you're in a, like from a financial perspective and you're you know looking at a, a company, especially if it's a company that's scaling, the ability of that company to like organize and ship code and ship code reliably if it's a software business is really critical to mm. having it scale. And so the engineering PM, engineering manager, designer roles and how they all fit together is really important to, you know, have that business perform at its peak. Interesting. Okay. Now, I want to go back and talk some financing because you, you mentioned early on with your, your first startup there, the pity round, you raised 500 grand and you weren't particularly good at it, but you took some experience away from that. So in these early rounds, what advice do you have? You know, what would you do differently or what did you do differently with Docsend? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a whole other hour right there. Um, of course. <laughs> so I, I, I will say that you know, Docsend itself has done some research around this, trying to get a larger sample set. So we've actually done research across thousands of startups raising money. And we, this is all opt-in on the startup's behalf, but all these companies use Docsend's product to raise and it gives us some really in-depth insights into not just my own anecdotal experience, but what's happening across the larger eco ecosystem and what general takeaways are there. Because part of my frustration was when I asked others for advice, it was always anecdotal and it was like, this worked for me, do that, or this didn't work for me, don't do that. And then it was hard to find larger trends. So with that as a caveat and saying there is some research that has larger trends in it, I'll share my own personal experience because it was super informative to me. But one, the two biggest mistakes I made with the first startup, um, one was I was not very good at the elevator pitch for it. Like I knew I could build a product, that we could build this product, but I didn't realize how... Like the fact that I say I can build it is, is not the same as, as how to articulate the vision behind the thing. And so a common response I would get from people was, I don't know that this is going to be a big company, but I like you. So I'll invest in you. Hmm. <laughs> the second biggest mistake I made was I approached fundraising kind of in serial as opposed to in parallel. So 
I would go pitch people like a couple a week as I'd find them. And this is problematic because everyone talks to each other. So if you've been fundraising for four or five months, you know, the people you pitched three or four months ago, if you still haven't raised the round, it just looks like you don't have great momentum. Mm. And that's bad. It's strictly worse than if you try to condense it down and, and be efficient about how you fundraise. It's both good for creating a sense of momentum and also just for time management as a founder because you don't get credit for fundraising. You get credit for building a company. <laughs> right. So, uh, so I both spent too much time on fundraising and then tactically really went about it in a not, not ideal way. And so for Docsend, when we did our seed round, we decided to skip the pre-seed round. And so my founders and I just put in some money. And then when we thought we were at a point where we're like, okay, we need to hire a team. So we went out and did our seed round and I condensed all of my meetings into a two week period. And I set up those meetings a month in advance. And my thinking was that if I can't raise in two weeks by pitching 40 like actual real investors, also ones that can like lead the round. So I can give me 500 K a million bucks for half of it. Like, you know what, I'm just going to stop. We're going to, we're going to make more progress and I'll try again in three or six months. Hmm. And that actually was a really helpful mentality because uh, it allowed me to, to feel like I could walk away. And it also allowed me to get really, really good at pitching in those two weeks because it was just literally all I was doing for those two weeks. I, I want to touch on a couple of things there. One, I really like that a month in advance setting up 40 meetings over a two-week period kind of thing. And I mean, it's just like, you know, go time's coming, you got them all set, and now you're, you're not doing this in series. I, I think that's really important advice. I'm curious about, did you, did you have any strategy in booking those meetings? Because what we used to do was, I always looked and we would say, okay, we got to go raise some capital. So what we're going to do is we're going to put our worst meetings, the no's first, try to schedule them in first so that we could get our asses handed to us, learn from it. And then start to build up to those who we think that are strong candidates might even be a lead and kind of strategize that way. What about you? Did you have any, when you approached those meetings, you know, what were you doing or what were you thinking to get that lead? How did you approach it? Similarly to you, Corey, we did kind of the smaller like angels or kind of the funds I knew less about or were less excited about first week and the ones I was more excited about the second week. Another thing I did was while I was setting up meetings a month in advance, I did a month in advance just so it was far enough in the future, their calendar should be free, but not too far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and something else I did when I was setting those meetings is I also set up meetings like before the, that two-week period started with uh, Series A and beyond investors. So, you, so one thing that people don't understand is if you're raising a seed round, you cannot ask a seed investor for feedback. Like they're looking at you being like, you're my business, you're what I invest in. So I'm deciding if I'm going to invest in you or not. And if they're not going to invest in you, it's not really like in their interest to give you honest feedback. It's just easier for them to be like, not a fit for me, which is not useful for you, the entrepreneur. And so by asking series A or beyond, there's no pressure for them to invest. Everyone knows that you're too early for them, but they are motivated to give you feedback because what they want to have happen is they want you to go off raise your seed round successfully, have the thing take off, and then them having given you advice and feedback early on is competitive advantage for you deciding to work with them later. And so they're just more motivated you know, to actually give you that feedback. And so I did that, and that was actually informative in how we like ordered the deck and how I got better at pitching and pitching succinctly and in a way that you know, represented this as being potentially a very large idea. That's really interesting. And I, I didn't think about that. I mean, it's obvious that 
that seed round, they're not going to give you any advice on there. They're either going to say they're going to give you a check or not. Yeah. But that A and B is, is, you know, you open up the, the door to, to some perhaps, you know, guidance or advice. And then you also start to build on that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's what we did. That's where we got our series A is one of those people we got feedback from. Another thing I did is that uh, a common question I heard from later stage investors on what I was going to get grilled on from kind of seed investors was, what's the defensive moat here? You know, mm. is there a network effect? Is there AI? Is there a data le- data mode or something? And the answer is like, not really. So they're like, how do you know they're not going to build this? Like Google, Microsoft, Box, Dropbox, someone else. And so I was like, I don't. And so in order to like hedge against that, I went around and like asked those companies. I found intros and just said, hey, we got a great product idea. And while I was at Facebook, I had entrepreneurs do this to me. And some of them were very cagey. And I always remember thinking to myself, and I shared this with them, like, hey, you don't have a whole lot to lose. Like, you have a lot to gain if I, the PM at Facebook, opened up to you about how we're thinking about things. Because I'm not going to redo my product roadmap based on an unproven entrepreneur and like hmm. a PowerPoint deck. I'd be horrible at my job. Like, so it's best for you if you just share what you're thinking about with me and I can give you feedback on it. Um, and it's always useful for me if you're a PM at a big company just to see like what's what are the new people thinking about out there. And so I went around and shared this concept uh, that is Oxen with these big firms and they everyone said, that's a great idea. We've thought about it. And I was like, going to build it. And they're like, maybe a couple of years in the future. And a couple of years in the future from a product perspective means never. And we also got a couple <laughs> offers to buy Docsend, but I had just been through this process with my previous startup. So I was like, no, thank you. But out of curiosity, like what will we work on? And they're like, oh, random other things. I was like, okay, you're just really not going to build this. And so whenever I got that question from VCs, I was like, well, I've actually gone and checked with them. And the answer is they're just not going to build it. So for some, that wasn't sufficient. And for others, they were like, oh, we're impressed that you actually were scrappy. You did that in homework and they're not going to build it. One of the earliest interviews I did was with a gentleman named Tyler Stewart, who owns, uh, or he, he leads a fund in the cannabis world. And one of the things he said is he's like, he's like, can you just come in with some differentiation? And it sounds like that kind of research in itself is, is a differentiating factor to show that you've thought through this as opposed to not, um, which is really interesting. I've never heard somebody actually going to the, the big competition and saying, are you actually going to build this? Yeah, I haven't actually run across any other entrepreneurs who have done that either, which is interesting. Huh? So maybe it was a horrible idea. I don't know. Who <laughs> knows, anecdotal. man? But hey, it, so, you know, what about Docsend now? How many rounds of financing? I should have known this. I should have researched. Apologies. Oh, no, okay. How far down the path are you? And, and what's that been like? Because I would imagine you approached it with a lot more strategy this time and bringing on these, these investors and, and thinking about what would be a, a meaningful exit for you. Yeah, and it's it's not really uh, about the exit per se. Whenever people ask, like, "Oh, what's your exit strategy?" and my thinking is always like, "You just have to build a great product, and and then therefore hopefully a great company, and good things will happen to you." It also depends on if you're like enterprise, enterprise or B two B or B C. So anyway, I'll, I can loop back to that. But in terms of like the financing strategy, if it can be called that, it's more of just this is what happened. But we raised uh, two million from Uncork, so Jeff Clavier led that round, one point seven, and he's been fantastic to work with. And he invested because we reminded him of SendGrid. He's like, "Oh, well, this seems like very obvious software that someone should have built, and maybe there are a bunch of other things out there." He's like, "But no one's big." He's like, "That reminds me of SendGrid, something that seemed obvious at the time, but no one else was doing it very well, and they were doing a great job of it." So 
I back SendGrid and that was a great investment for him. And so that was, that was what Jeff used to do the seed round. And mm. then when we launched DocSend, we didn't have a website. Well, we would just trade entrepreneurs free DocSend accounts for feedback on the product. And so people would start using it for fundraising. And then we raised an 8 million Series A because Howard Hartenbaum at August Capital, who I had asked for advice early on, you know, just started getting DocSend links from a lot of people and was just like, oh, you're building a great product. Like, I think you're going to figure it out. Um, but we yeah, didn't yeah. have a lot of, we didn't have any revenue at the time. So then we'd raised 10 million and needed to figure out what our uh, business is. Because you can do that sometimes for a Series A, but you cannot do that for a Series B typically. You need some real like bigger traction numbers or revenue numbers. And so then by the time we figured out what the right go-to-market was for us, we'd actually gotten to almost like break even and ended up raising a $5 million round from DCM and Kyle Louis on our board from there. And he's, he's been great to work with as all of our investors have been great to work with. And we actually had an offer for a much larger amount of money. But the way that Doxon has grown is, is something I refer to as like product-led growth the term other people use too. But, you know, it's uh, 100% of our, our revenue is inbound. 95% is self-serve. Our, our largest accounts are in the low hundreds of thousands. But by and large, it's like a pretty long tail of not necessarily SMB, but like small deployments at companies, mm. uh, one, two, five, ten seat type things. And this has some really great characteristics. Like we don't have a CAC and we have over 13,000 companies paying for DocSend, which starts to become like really interesting scale. And so, you know, we're almost 60 people. Uh, we don't need to raise more capital if we don't want to. We have a very clear product roadmap. Team is very motivated and engaged. It has taken a while. And I think I could probably redo this in half the time if I had to again. How, how um, long are you into it now? <laughs> we're seven years into it now. Yeah. Um, you know, how does it, that, it's never been growing faster. So it, every year it becomes more interesting. Do you feel any pressure from your investors? And, and how were some of the negotiations for that capital? I mean, you said you, you had the opportunity to take a larger check and you didn't. There must have been a reason for that. What kind of pressures do you have to, to deliver a return to these, to these GPs? So the, the really great venture investors like understand the game that they're in is you want to give a company $10 million and you want to get $600 million back. So it's got to be a return the fund type of company. And it happens very, very rarely. Most of the companies just kind of go out of business. Like there are very few companies that have done, it's like Calendly or Lucidchart or a few other ones that have kind of done DocSend's kind of like B2B growth model, but with consumer tactics. And, and so there, there just aren't a lot of data points necessarily on it. But for, for our investors, I explained the theory to them, like our mission statement is to combine common workflows for documents sent externally into one intuitive solution. So hmm. that as a mission statement is pretty differentiated. Like Box isn't going to rebuild DocuSign. DocuSign's not going to rebuild Intralinks. Like all the common things that you want to do with documents sent externally, like the data room market's like a four to $5 billion market with just primarily legacy incumbents. And anyway, so, so the, the argument I made to, to raise the capital was just around like, let's look at the market and like, let's look at the size of the opportunity that's there. And the reason we took the smaller check is that the larger check would have pushed us to go sell up market and to go sell enterprise. Hmm. But I didn't think at that point in time, we'd be able to execute well on both strategies. So we still have the enterprise play available to us. Uh, our business is so cash flow positive. It's not clear that 
we would need to raise a ton of outside capital to do that, but I'm certainly open to it. And, you know, I, I do agree that for the most like tried and true way of like creating a, a big company is to do enterprise outbound sales. However, it depends on the DNA of the founders and it also depends on the situation a company finds itself in. And I think for Doxon, the path we've been taking is, has been the, the correct path. Hmm. Interesting. It's um, good on you. And I mean, obviously, it's, uh, you're taking some time here, but this is also your second or, or third kick at the can. So perhaps there's some, you know, a little bit longer in the tooth, a little more gray hair to make better decisions. I mean, the median time to go public, though, is over 10 years. So Good point. Yeah. it feels for me like a long time, but so there are a couple of biases that happen, especially in fundraising or in company building. One is for fundraising for a founder that doesn't raise, there's no motivation for them to share that story. If it's like painful or embarrassing or bad. So you don't hear them. You only hear the good stories. And then for someone who might've raised successfully, but had a real hard time of it, there's also no incentive for them to share that story. And so what you're left with is like, I guess everyone's able to raise just like super quickly and without any effort. Why is this so hard for me? Mm. And so that's some of the research we've done around it. It's like, actually, it takes a long time for most people. And it's very, very difficult. You do have outliers that are able to raise in just a few weeks, but there aren't that many of them. And well, kind of, yeah, let's go ahead, get Brian. into that. I, I, I want to dive in. So, so, I want to talk about Docsend as, as a tool because we've used it before and it's starting to become more and more of uh, kind of the go-to for, for financing as, as the industry we're in, but, or excuse me, I'm in and, and who you serve as part of your, uh, your product offering. But one of the things I thought was really interesting is you sent over a bunch of the data points you have on financing and specifically like right to the deck, like on a pre-seed round, here's the slides that are most written. Here's a winning deck versus a, a failing deck. Here's the amount of time. I was, I was really surprised to see that the average time I think is over 25 weeks for a pre-seed investment. What, what can you tell us about that? What was interesting and surprising to you from that data, which I'll also put in the show notes or I'll link to? Yeah, I'm happy to, to go through a couple of those. And that'd be great if you could put it in the show notes. It's better kind of as like a, a visual versus a um, kind of like just talking about it. Uh, but, yeah, yeah but talking data is no fun, but yeah, ah. the visuals are great. <laughs> but, you know, the, the average amount of in the pre-seed round was 416,000 or about 500,000 in the U.S. The average length of time that pitch deck was looked at is just three minutes and 21 seconds. So people are deciding very, very quickly if they're going to take a meeting with you and, and judging your potential business very, very quickly. We also try to just show like what should be in a deck. And so that's why we have like the pages broken up by category and kind of show which decks have which category, how often, and how many pages are in that category. Uh, we also show things like how many had a lead investor versus didn't have a lead investor, you know, and how long is the deck? The deck is 20 pages on average. On average in a pre-seed round, the entrepreneur has contacted 54 investors. That's a lot. And they have 26 meetings on average before they get their pre-seed round raised. And 24% of them will take 25 weeks or longer to raise. So, you know, there are 16% that raise in fewer than six weeks, but that's a pretty big spread of time for people mm -hmm. to, to get through and averages over 20 weeks. So, you know, some of these things, I like these stats because for, for the average, like successful pre-seed like round, that entrepreneur probably hits a lull where they're like, this is taking too long and this is way too hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what these numbers tell me. What it, do you think are some of the characteristics that those who are able to raise quicker and better rounds have versus the others? 
Yeah, I mean, so we, we do some of that breaking it up by demographics. So, you know, the average investor meetings by age of the founders, 30s is, they, they, is an outlier. They get the most meetings. And so it's not in your 20s. People talk about like, oh, in your 20s. And then it's like, after you're 40, good luck. And actually, the 50s is better than 40s for the number of meetings they can that get. That stood out to me. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of money going to those in the 50s. Yeah, and but it's like average amount raised by age of founders. 40s is way less than 30s and 50s. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know what it is about the 40s. And then you actually raise more if you have a mixed gender founding team. So you know that speaks highly to diversity is rewarded at least in the in the feature set that that we have here and we're going to come out with a report that goes into more by age by gender by ethnicity as well but this is just kind of like a, a teaser in in this pre-seed version yeah yeah no it's it's a really interesting report i enjoyed reading through it and something else that st- stood out to me as well was the successful rounds for founders and founding teams and i think it's you know the the kind of curve is like single founders get a certain amount two, uh, two founders get the highest amount and then it just goes right off a cliff from there if you have three four or five founders it's you know good luck it just comes off and so i thought that was interesting data as well yeah it's not as soon as you have a certain number of founders the investors are all thinking which of you is going to get fired first <laughs> mm. yeah because you have a lot an increasing number of founders it's increasingly likely that not all of you make it and that like kind of coming apart process uh, is a big risk factor to the company. Hmm. You know, I'm just looking at, uh, I know you got to jump here in about 10 minutes and DocSend as a tool, uh, we've, we've had some success with it and I've enjoyed it. And, and, you know, the data you're able to pull from there is obviously actionable. What are your tips for the, for the product? How have you seen some of your customers, primarily in the finance space or the sales space, really successfully use it and perhaps even integrate it with other tools that they have? Yeah, for sure. And, and in many ways, we're, we're you know, a humble document solution. Like you, if you're out raising capital, are the star of the show. <laughs> so we can't compensate for not having a great pitch, for not having differentiation, for not having a, like a coherent you know, you know, deck that explains what you what you're doing. But you know, assuming you have those things, the reason that people use Doxin and the, the way they use Doxin is uh, that they will, for each potential investor, create a link to their deck, and they can watermark it. They can restrict access just to that firm they're sending it to. They can make sure that it can't be forwarded outside of the firm. But those people never need to create a Doxin account or have a login or anything like that. And then for each of those links, they can see how long each page is being viewed and they can see where that document inside that firm is being forwarded. So what that means is that you've got this dashboard that shows everyone you've sent this pitch deck to and where engagement is happening. And it's not rocket science, but like if someone doesn't read it, they're probably not going to meet with you. Or if they were reading it and they just stopped, then this is not a good sign. Or they might come back three months later. And so like that reading information is, is really actionable in the sense of like how likely is it to raise and who are your most likely prospects. And then after you have that individual link, we have this data room product we call Spaces where you can create one link to a collection of Excel files or links or Word docs or PowerPoints. And then you can make that uh, more complicated and larger over time because typically it's the first meeting and then it's like, yeah, okay, we're interested. Why don't you send us more material? You send them even more material. And they're like, we're really interested. You send them even more material. And you need a solution that can kind of like manage all these materials across all these groups 
and also give you insight into what's happening, who's doing what. If you need to update a document, you can do that across all the links, but we still show what mm. other versions people looked at historically. So for any financial firms that in the US have to comply with the SEC, Doxin can help them comply with the SEC. So there are a whole bunch of workflows here that Doxin helps people for. Not in financing for sure, in many other areas, sales, business development, HR, you can also send out a document for signature like an NDA, or you can gate a document with a signature saying, you have to sign my NDA before you can actually get into my data room. Right. And then, so, so you kind of have a, there's a bit there as well. I mean, it, be, it can, can start to become, like you say, like a data room that you can continue to build off of. Yeah, 100%. We, we yeah. absolutely do that. And then the signature component as well. And we integrate with Box, Dropbox, Google Drive, Microsoft. So we end up making it easy to get all your stuff into one spot and coordinate with the other people at your firm. So that's awesome. And I mean, the point of the interview wasn't to be a pitch for, for Docsend, but I, you know, I will say I've, I've used it and, and it's a powerful tool. So that's, uh, that's cool to hear. Um, you know, something else I wanted to touch on, and this, uh, this goes to an interview that I did with, I think, another customer of yours, a gentleman named Kyle Dunn, who is formerly of, of Mailer Capital before he was bought out by MJ Hudson. And Kyle and I were talking about this and he said that when you're pitching, and you're using your deck, you're, you're not going for credibility first, you're competing for time. And when you say that the, on average, somebody only looks at your pitch deck for three minutes before making a decision to have a meeting with you or to, to further the conversation, I mean, that's, it's, you now have the data against that. And I think it's a really important thing that entrepreneurs need to see and know is that this pitch deck is a, you know, almost a piece of rhetoric to drive a response and to get a conversation going where you can then go deeper. Absolutely. And my pitches have never been with a deck in the background. It's always been an informed conversation where they want to push deeper on certain things and then it makes it a really fun debate. But yeah, you've got to be really concise in the materials you use to, to get the meeting. Some people can definitely raise without a deck or without anything, but those people are rarer than the ones who, who do need to create some asset or some, something compelling to give in someone to give them time, to compete for that person's time. Right, right. Wow. Well, really interesting. How can listeners follow your work and, and yeah, check out everything you're doing? I mean, follow me or add me on LinkedIn, just Russ Heddleston. The Docs and blog comes out with a lot of interesting research on fundraising and finance. And there are actually just a lot of correlations between what happens in like seed and what happens in like A or B, or even like venture capitalists raising rounds. We have some really interesting research on that. And that's all up on our, on our website. And I also will tweet occasionally, although not as often. <laughs> all right. Awesome. And maybe before we jump, any final notes for, uh, or final remarks for, for those entrepreneurs who are raising these early rounds? Yeah, any final advice? Oh, I mean, two things I would say. One is fundraising, in my experience, has been a work smarter, not work harder thing. And, and so, you know, really be open to feedback, not exactly like sales. If you just keep running at it, you'll get there eventually. It certainly helps, but it, it's not sufficient. And then the second one is come prepared because it is really hard. And, and it, that's okay that it's hard. <laughs> you know, you might, you, other people won't tell you how hard it is, but you make sure you have a support system and, you know, be leaning on yourself. And to the extent you have co-founders, like be upfront with them about, you know, if you're going to take on the burden of going through this, that it's going to be tough and you're going to need their help. So those are just you know, two things I would, I would mention in, in, in passing. And also your elevator pitch is really important. 
right back from your early days. That's awesome. Well, Russ, thanks so much for taking the time. I think uh, it's been really informative and I'll put all this in the show notes because there's a lot of good data and a lot of good stuff there that people can uh, definitely use. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.